Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. We're here to help software founders and operators identify and unpack sustainable growth strategies in the ever-changing world of SaaS. Today, we hear from Francesca Crihelli, Senior Director of Developer Experience at Sneak. Francesca is a leading voice in software on how to build and engage a developer community. Prior to joining Sneak, Francesca spent nearly eight years at MongoDB, where she was instrumental in pioneering and scaling their developer community from the early days, long before MongoDB was a household name. In today's episode, we unpack how MongoDB built one of the largest and most vibrant developer communities around, how you can start and scale your own developer community, and how Sneak is bringing product-led growth into the cybersecurity space. All that and more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Francesca Crihelli. Francesca, thanks so much for joining us here today on the Build podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've, uh, I, I think it's such an honor. <laughs> well, I'm particularly excited to, to have you on because I, I know for me, uh, this is going to be my first conversation uh, diving into, at least on the podcast, diving into all things developer relations, uh, developer experience, uh, and community, which is obviously incredibly important to product-led growth. So I, I think we're going to cover a lot of exciting ground today. So, so I'm excited about it. So starting off, um, you joined MongoDB back in 2011, and that was a pretty early time in the company's life and its journey. So what did MongoDB look like back then? Yeah, it was incredibly exciting and also really hectic all the time. We were constantly going through some stage of hyper growth. So every three to six months, the company was completely different. It was like you had a new job every three to six months um, because the scale of the company and the size of the problem you were dealing with just changed dramatically. But one of the interesting things about it that I always tell founders when they ask me about my experience in the early days is that just setting the context that Azure had been launched like a year or two before and Google Cloud wasn't even a thing. Twilio was about the same size as us in terms of growth. Um, So the market was really, really different and developer tools and DevOps were not really top of mind the way they are today. And uh, so it was really exciting to be, be part of building that. But one of the most important things I, I learned at MongoDB is that I don't think anyone at the company ever set limits on what they could or should achieve. And there were always really big goals. Nobody was ever really intimidated by them. But it really taught me to think big and beyond and taking steps to get there. And I think that that's just critical and important when you're thinking about any type of company, but particularly in developer relations and developer marketing, because it all depends on how your customers use your product. And your initial role at MongoDB was in community marketing. And, and I guess if we unpack that a bit, what did community mean to you at the time and to MongoDB? And then what was the playbook that worked back then in the early days of community? At the time, community was almost a proxy term for developer awareness. The founders were really focused on maintaining uh, that developer awareness Um, growing that, growing developer adoption. And that type of focus helped build the massive market that MongoDB can now take advantage of. Uh, But the initial principle behind the 
community and go-to-market playbook on the marketing side was that social proof was the most effective tool we had. So we focused a lot on building channels for sharing customer and user stories. And I think this was really critical for us because our biggest competitor was the relational database, which at the time, the dominant player was Oracle and Microsoft and IBM. And the relational database is really sticky. It's been around for over 40 years. Millions of people around the world who use it, um, people are certified in using the relational database. They teach it in college. It's very, very standard. And so the switching costs are really high. And so when we thought about when, whenever we came against anything, it was always how do we push out the relational database and show that there's another option there that developers can choose when they're building specific types of applications. And so that, uh, that principle of let's focus on social proof led us to organizing lots of events. So I remember in, I think it was 2011, 2012, there was one month where we did more events than there were days in the month. And a few of those were trade shows, but most of them were our own conferences and small events. We did a lot of owned events for a company of our size. Um, and we were able to get great crowds of people there uh, because we worked really hard on driving registration, keeping costs down. Um, and, um, and it worked really well because a lot of people found out about, about us either at big industry trade shows or because they attended our events or somebody else attended our events and that word of mouth then spread. We use that same principle of social proof in a lot of other ways. Uh, one of the things we did is we launched an ambassador program called the MongoDB Masters, which helped us mobilize our biggest and most credible fans to participate in events, create content and spread that developer awareness around. And then one of the last things we did in those early days was we built a meetup program. Originally, we started, um, and, and meetups are pretty common in developer communities. They've been happening for years. Um, one of the most uh, ubiquitous things in the developer world is like the Java user group. So there's Java user groups in almost every city. And so we wanted to emulate that. So we started with the goal of like, let's find organizers in these 10 key cities and help them grow their membership, ensure that they do at least four to five meetups a year. And then we evolved to, okay, now we have hundreds of groups. <laughs> how do we make this scale out? And how do, what do we do to help the organizers do that? That was how we leveraged the concept of social proof and found different channels for it. And I think it's pretty cool to see how the companies continued in that, in that way, you know, building building on that and continuing to rely on customers being the, uh, the source of our net new leads and events being a central focus for driving interest in our customers and engagement with them. Well, it hadn't occurred to me until you just started explaining that, that you know, all startups find themselves in a position of needing to convince the market that, they should, that the market should care about their product. Um, and if it's the new version of something that's an incumbent that's been in the space for a while, there's already a challenge there. You're describing a problem that's even more complex in the sense that it's not just, hey, we're a, you know that database that you've used for a long time? We're a newer version of that. But it's a fundamentally <laughs> new way to think about databases as well. So you're not only evangelizing a new product, but also kind of a new way to think about backend data models. And so that creates yeah. a, a heavier lift requirement, which definitely underscores that need uh, for social proof within developer communities. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that there wasn't a product before. It just, there is a product and maybe it's not the best option for you and what the market needs. Um, it's interesting. There's, um, there's this book that I read recently that's 
really good. Um, it's called Seven Powers. It's by this author. His name is Hamilton Helmer. But it, it goes through, it talks a lot about strategy and business strategy. And the premise of the book is that there are certain businesses that have powers that help them succeed. Then there are strategies they can employ to growing and then achieving dominance because they understand what power they have. And one of the things that's really interesting about where a lot of software companies fit in is uh, they have this thing like the one of the powers is called counter positioning. So in the example of MongoDB, I think that's one example that fits really well. Um, a newcomer comes in and they have a better business model than the incumbent and the incumbent doesn't mimic them because there's this fear of damage to their existing business. So a perfect example on the consumer side for this is like Netflix. <laughs> you know, Netflix came in and they said, you know, we're going to build this DVD business by mail. And Blockbuster was like, no, we make all of our business on late fees. And so, and we all know what happened there. Uh, you know, we, we all, uh, we've seen Netflix evolve beyond where Blockbuster ever thought they could be. And Blockbuster, you know, had to, had to shut a lot of their doors. They went bankrupt. I think it's a really interesting view to take of like, how, what power do you have and how do you take advantage of it? The fact that some of the biggest players didn't really notice MongoDB coming up because we were building a business that was just so fundamentally different from what their core offering was. Um, it took years for them to actually come out with something like a what they called like a non-relational database um, to compete against us. And when they did, Oracle actually came out with a non-relational database to compete against us. And when they did, nobody cared because there was already so much power behind MongoDB and a few other competitors in the space, like in that non-SQL space that Oracle couldn't really play in the in the ballpark with those people. I love that. It's, it's almost kind of reverse engineering the innovator's dilemma. Um, how can uh -huh. we play exactly. the chess That's game? That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. It's like playing the chess game to get to a point where they, they eventually realize it's checkmate, um, but they can't, uh, they, they can't compete against you. So, so I really like that framework and, and way to think about it. So back to community, as you're going down this path and focused on developer awareness and focused on social proof with developers, doing a lot of events, creating this ambassador program, it's starting to scale. I guess, when did you know that this community experiment was starting to become something that would be a long-term strategy? What signals did you see that, that sort of indicated it's turning that corner? I don't think that it was ever a thing that we realized. I think the founders were invested in it from the beginning and it was part of their core it was part of their core principles when they were talking to investors, like the investors that signed on with them believed in the power of developers as being the best consumers and prosumers and the people who help business within an organization. I mean, every time, I mean, they were so always so focused on making the product better for the community, supporting community growth, things like that. And I think in the beginning, they saw that the bottoms up developer model, um, which in many ways follows the same mechanics of PLG where developers or the end users in the case of a generalized PLG model become the champions of a product and then help you sell in the organization. I think they really believed that. And we just consistently saw it. Uh, we, we saw it in like anecdotal examples. We saw it based on, you know, um, attribution models. It was just very clear that the more, um, the more we invested in this, the, the better the community grew. There were obviously so many other factors at play that helped, um, that company become successful. I think um, the product design and the innovation there, I think MongoDB has an exceptional sales organization and an exceptional sales model. And I think all of those things played together to build a really solid company. But I think the founders always knew that community was important. And for almost every developer first company, it's, it's something that 
uh, really powers the early days and then helps you build that uh, momentum for the long term. And if we think about playbooks and and what worked back in the day, what works today, you know, a lot of the the context that we're talking about for these earlier days of community marketing and developer relations at MongoDB, this was kind of, you know, back in the 2011 to 2014 timeframe when you were in that role. And I wonder if we we fast forward the tapes to today to 2020, um, you know, on the cusp of 2021 at this point, you know, does that same playbook um, still work or has the developer relations um, and community marketing sort of playbooks, uh, have they evolved from there? And are there new strategies that, that folks should keep in mind today? Right now, I, I talk to founders all the time about this and they always ask the same things that you asked. What did you do in the early days that I can copy? And I always tell them you should not do the same thing because times have changed. Also, every big every big company that sells to developers is doing the same thing now. So you almost have to find those like blue ocean strategies. But I uh, one thing that I find really helpful, I've, I've worked with a lot of founders who are running um, developer first businesses. And one thing that I notice is that it's typically like when you can find your principle for growth, then you just follow that thread. So in the examples that we talked through before in the early days of MongoDB, we saw that social proof was really powerful. So we followed that thread and designed many different programs around that. And the social proof uh, as a principle applied really well to uh, the one power we had, which was counter positioning. You know, we were um, offering people a different business model, an open source database um, that was non-relational in comparison to something that they were used to, um, and that we were trying to help them see how that non-relational database was better than the relational database. If you, as a founder, can find that core principle and understand, you know, what what is my what's the power? How am I coming into this uh, market, and what what helps me be successful? Like, why am I different? Um, and then figure out like what's the principle behind our growth. So I think identifying identifying what that is can be really helpful in guiding your principles uh, head. So for example, um, in the case of Datadog, like one of their first principles probably is they integrate really well with other products. And so so much of what I've seen on the outside of Datadog's marketing is like they're talking about how they integrate with AWS and how they fit really well with that market. The AWS market is massive. And I think they just they just announced a big partnership with Microsoft. Like those are two huge markets that they could just go after and eat up. If that's one of their core principles, like how do we do, how do we exercise that principle at scale? Um, a few of the things that, um, so a few of the things there that you can think about is like, if you integrate really well with other products, can you create content that fits in with all those other products? and find ways to get that community that is already using those other products and tools to become aware of you and see the value in what you offer. Um, So figuring out those principles will help you identify a go-to-market strategy that helps here. But I think the hard part is not figuring out the tactics. I think the hardest part is figuring out what's our first principle of growth, like what helps us stand out um, in this market and how can we use that to achieve. Um, And then once you have that, the tactics, like the content, the going to events, organizing events, things like that become a lot easier to figure out. Uh, So uh, my one note to founders is just just think about that with your founding team um, and then try to understand what are you guys willing to do? What are you what is your team willing to do? And what do you think you have the skills to do on the go to market side to help you drive developer awareness and adoption? 
And and getting into some of the the tactics there, as as you mentioned, so if you define that core principle or that core pillar, and then you're looking to say, all right, well, where do I start? What do I do first? I think you've pointed me towards uh, the importance of of documentation, the importance of the first five minutes uh, experience uh, for developers. So I'm wondering, as as we think about tactics to go and start executing, you know, maybe say a little bit more about bo- both of those. Even before you launch, these are two things you need to think about. And yeah, I think I think there's like, what is the first five minutes feel like? The first five minutes of any developer product should be incredible, seamless, easy to understand and help someone accomplish one problem and help the user see the value. Just to give context to this, so wider context, I think a lot of us in the PLG world are used to really seamless, wonderful user experiences at this point. Like there's examples like Slack and um, Dropbox that uh, have launched really good consumer experiences. For developer tools, it's not like that. There is, it's very challenging. A lot of the systems that developers use are complicated. Um, They need to think about how they integrate together. I think that's why there's so much opportunity in the space is because building products is actually very challenging and making systems work together is, is very difficult. So if you can do anything you can to make your product easier and more enjoyable and nice to use than the competitive than what developers are used to, you're winning a lot in that category. So one company that did this really well is Segment. So Segment just had a huge exit. Um, they were, um, but they were a dev first company. Um, you think about them as like a consumer data company or a customer data company, but they were a dev first company. Uh, I'm sure some listeners know, but Segment um, makes it really easy to send and manage customer data. Um, And so if you work in, um, it's a huge space overall, this customer data management uh, space. But um, if you work in uh, marketing or in growth and product, you probably understand it's it's really challenging to send data between different systems and for all of it to stay in the same shape or adapt to different shapes. But Segment started in Y Combinator and they had a really different product. I think it was like an education startup or something like that. But when they started working on Segment, they actually started with an open source product called Analytics.js and they launched it on Hacker News, which is sort of like the Reddit and the center of the universe for developers. And developers absolutely loved it. It was simple. It solved a really big problem that developers uh, had to manage every day. It made it really easy to send data to any tool without having to implement or learn or test a new API every time, which now is the backbone that Segment is built on. And they just had like a 3 billion plus exit. Um, but that initial tool, Analytics.js, was so easy to use. Um, and that's what helped drive awareness for Segment in the early days. And um, I'm, I personally love that story. And I think it's um, I'm really excited for what this team, the segment team does with Twilio. Um, But that's just underscores the importance of having really, really easy first five minutes. Um, But then the next thing is you have to have amazing documentation. Documentation is important for those who don't know much about what the developer workflow is like. Docs are like the prescriptive advice that developers rely on to get things done. And they also build, bridge the gap in the product if a product is challenging to understand. Um, but if you don't invest in your docs, you're cutting your growth and you're, you're making it much harder for yourself. Um, uh, a few companies that do documentation really well. Um, I personally love Auth Zero's documentation. Um, it's built in, uh, it's definitely designed for developers and they, um, they segment their documentation into different programming languages. So it makes it really easy to start for developers who use different languages in their applications to find what they need um, in order to get started. Um, 
And developers sometimes are very much like tribal in they in their um in their information gathering because they do use specific programming languages for specific projects. So they do gravitate towards the programming language specific content. So I think Auth0 is a great example if any founder is looking to uh, for reference. Um, but also if you're a technical founder, you probably have documentation that you love and you understand the pro like what makes it great. I think the hard part is building the team to help make that a reality. Um, but just, you know, go back to the print book, go back again to, uh, the sites that you find to be really useful and use that as inspiration. And then my, my last question for you on community is um, again, bringing it to 2020 um, and, and the current context. I know one tactic or, or one thing that uh, folks will often do is create, uh, create a community portal, if you will. And, uh, and a great place to start is to use Slack for that or to use Discord for that. Um, I'm wondering, you know, is that the best way to, to build community or are there other strategies that people should have in mind there? I, I do think it depends on what you mean by building community. So uh, I'm in a, in a number of Slack communities. And um, in those communities, I've made some friends. Uh, one of them is a, is a podcast community. And I've built connections in that community. I know the hosts. Um, and uh, I go to, we, we have like a bunch of virtual meetups and stuff like that. Um, but I feel connected to that that brand into that community. Um, and so as if you think about it from a business sense, like I have more loyalty to them because I'm a member of that community. So if that's what you're looking for in building this initial community forum, then Slack and Discord are great. But most developer tools companies eventually need a Q&A forum to help their users adopt the product. Now that's really different. And for that, I would recommend investing in like a, a forum type software to build out. I've heard really good things about Discourse and Tribe, but there's a lot of companies out there. And I would advise any founder to make a list of the things that they want and need for their community before going out and doing demos, just so that you understand um, and don't get lost in uh, the in the demos and in all the features. Uh, figure out like what really matters to you um, before you go out and look at software. And now shifting gears to your current role, which is at Sneak, um, I, I guess maybe to start for anyone who isn't familiar with Sneak, um, tell us a little bit more about the company and, and what caused you to, to, to join there and, and also a little bit about your role. Sneak empowers businesses to develop software fast while they stay secure. Uh, our products build security directly into the development workflow. So security at ops teams can be best can build best practices into the workflow and developers uh, can write and deploy more secure code much faster. Um, so some of, some of the customers include uh, some of the names I've already mentioned, Segment, MongoDB, um, Auth0, and Salesforce. Um, so why did I join? I met one of the founders of Sneak, uh, Guy Pajardi. And um, when we talked about what Sneak was and what they were thinking about, I immediately understood the importance of the product. Um, so I worked in the data world for eight years. And uh, from that time, I knew that data is an organization's most important asset for innovation. But at the same time, it's also the greatest liability that they have. And the two are often at odds with each other. So the liability will often slow down development speed and innovation. And so every big organization or sometimes even medium-sized and small organizations have this challenge where uh, the security teams are slowing down development speed 
and innovation, and the developers are frustrated by this. Um, so Sneak is solving this problem in a really elegant way by putting security into the software development pipeline so de developers can catch security issues really quickly and take control of their product and the end results. Now, security teams love it because it scales their efforts to help make the organization more secure. Um, it helps scale best practices. DevOps teams love the continued growth and reliance on autom automation for resilience. Um, and developers love it because they can just uh, go on their merry way, feel more empowered, um, and code more quickly and deploy more quickly. So just understanding the scope of the problem, I knew that this was a company I wanted to be a part of somehow. Um, but I, it was just a matter of when and how. So eventually, I just emailed Guy, you know, two years later and said, you know, I really want to talk to you about this. And then I was really fortunate that Sneak had a role that fit what I needed. So at Sneak, I right now I focus on building out our freemium business. So all the way up from um, awareness and acquisition to activation, and then down to monetization. So how many free users do we end up converting to paid customers? Now, one of the most unique things about Sneak, and you and I have chatted about this before, is that you're taking a PLG approach to security. And, and that is pretty unique within security. And so curious to know a little bit more, what does that look like? Why is it so rare for, for PLG to, to show up in the security world? Especially as we look at PLG, it seems like it's moving into every industry, but security has been a little bit slower to adopt. So most security tools will follow a top-down sales approach. And most don't offer a free or a trial version of their product. And, and one of the reasons for that is because actual security teams are, are quite small and their, their scope is big and their role is big in the organization, but there's actually not a ton of the talent out there. And there's much fewer of those people there. Um, but there's tons of developers who need security solutions. Um, and so this small group of folks within an organization are looking out for this massive group of people who are building um, and innovating within this company. And so, uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of these companies don't follow the typical PLG approach is because the, they think their market's actually really small, but in fact, it's actually huge if you think about it in a different way. And that's, again, one of the, the things that makes Sneak different. But with Sneak, it's really easy to get started. As long as you have code on your desktop or a project in a GitHub account, you can get started in, with Sneak and see the value in five minutes. Um, this is a game changer in the security world and it helps us move faster and acquire, acquire customers at a much lower cost. So while our, uh, our future customers are out searching for options, they might be leaving a demo request for our competitors while they're taking Sneak for a test run. And um, I've actually talked to a user a few weeks ago who was in this exact scenario, and she got to see all the value of Sneak before even getting a uh, response to their request for a demo from another company. So uh, you can see, like, if, if you're not offering a free service and your competitors are, you're actually slowing your customers down and helping them make a decision faster with some of your competitors. So, uh, so that's why I think it's it's actually really fascinating that Sneak found the way to to do this at this scale. It's by opening up and saying, you know, security isn't just for the security teams; it's for the developers, it's for the uh, it's for the DevOps teams, it's for the security teams, and it's also for like the architects within the organization. Um, the our free version 
also fits a few different needs. So uh, in the examples I mentioned before, it can be seen as a proof of concepts for folks who are in the buying cycle. But it's also a free tool for developers who build open source software who want dependency scanning and vulnerability management within their dev pipelines. So we use it as a channel for both of those use cases, uh, which helps grow our developer mindshare and then helps future customers make decisions at their own pace. So if you're using Sneak for open source, it's free forever. Um, but if you need to use Sneak on um, closed source projects, that's when you would want to enter into a monetary relationship with us. And, and that whole idea of what you're describing there is, um, I have to say, super refreshing to me because I know as I go and talk to different folks about product-led growth, uh, a lot of times I'll hear, well, that's nice and that works for Slack or that works for Zoom or whoever, but like, we're a security company. We sell to the CISO. That will never work for us. Um, and I think that that's just uh, really kind of relying on a relic of the past and sort of a past mindset. And so to see the way that you guys at Sneak are, are really just breaking that mold and showing, and then obviously you have the success to, mm -hmm. to sort of corroborate it, showing that PLG can be done in security. It just needs to be, you need to think about it differently. Um, I, again, it's just really refreshing to me. I, I almost feel like that's really uh, unfair to the CISO. Because why do you think the CISO is not going to go out and try software? Why do you think they're not going to read documentation? All of these people were once hands-on doers, and it's totally fair to assume that they would go out and search on their own. Um, I mean, I remember when I was at MongoDB, uh, one, of the, one of the heads of uh, a really big um, team, uh, I think he, he I, I don't remember his title exactly, but he worked at one of the biggest banks in the world, and he emailed someone on our side and and basically told us that something on our documentation was wrong. And that's when I realized I was like, whoa, we never thought that this person would be reading our docs. <laughs> um, and and that's pretty incredible. So so to anyone who says that an executive is not going to go out and try free software, I don't think you're giving enough credit to your buyers in the end because they are curious and they probably will, if you make it available to them, go out and try your free product, they probably will go visit your docs because at the end of the day, like they were once developers or security engineers themselves. So they want to get back in it. Now, if we get into, you know, integrating a lot of these different moving parts that, that we've talked about, so um, developer experience uh, and developer relations, uh, product-led growth, um, and then different marketing tactics, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of questions of what does this look like in real life? Um, what does this look like on the ground? How can I do this uh, for founders that are listening right now? So any examples um, from Sneak about how you guys integrate these different moving parts? Our, our teams work really, really closely together on a lot of these go-to-market activities. But one of, the, one of the things, again, in terms of like thinking about principles and how and understanding your customers, uh, one thing that uh, you have to remember is that developers um, can find your product by asking questions. And developers ask questions all the time because they're working with tools and with software that um, they they you know develop development tools and toolkits change really quickly um, because there's constantly new updates or there's new products out there. Some are much more complicated than others are, so they're constantly online looking for solutions to problems. So they can find your product by asking questions. This means uh, they'll find your product through word of mouth, so by asking a friend or asking on social media, or 
they'll ask Google and Google will give them an answer. So one of the things that dev first companies should always be thinking about is SEO because you can insert yourself in the developer's workflow as they search for answers. And lots of folks will try tactics that are tried and true in SEO. And that's great. At least you're, you're doing something and trying to capture some of that traffic. But you need to go after the blue ocean where no one else is fighting. And one of the big growth levers for Sneak is uh, in something called programmatic SEO, which is uh, something that helps you build search reputation uh, by... Um, by not just writing new content all the time, but by programmatically adding to a giant repo of content. So one example of programmatic SEO is Quora. They're just constantly, people are creating new questions and then new content's being created. Um, and that's why Quora has such good SEO. And when you search for a question on Google, it's very often that a Quora answer will come up. Uh, so Sneak maintains a massively growing vulnerability database. And it's the database that powers the security recommendations in the product, but it's also open and searchable. And we get tons of organic traffic through this part of our website. Um, and so this is, this is a really powerful programmatic SEO asset. And so uh, before I joined one of my teammates, Oren, he came up with another cool concept for programmatic SEO um, because he saw how effective this was at driving growth. Um, so he calls this the open source advisor, and it actually just launched, I think, uh, two weeks ago. And it's a dynamically updated repository of open source packages. And the goal is to become the data-driven resource for developers as they select different packages, which help us in building awesome uh, awareness and driving free conversions in the long term. Um, so those are two examples of uh, using the PLG mindset of growth, like how can you take advantage of a scenario where no one else is really playing, um, but using it with a dev mindset. So how can we help developers become more successful? What are some of the technical resources that they need that they can't find right now? So for example, the vulnerability database, how can we give them information about open source dependencies, the vulnerabilities that affect them, how to remediate them? And then in the case of the advisor, how do we help people select packages? So even before they're thinking about um, so even before they're thinking about, oh, how do I fix my vulnerabilities when they're building an application, they want to know what's the data behind my decision so that I know I'm picking the right tool. Um, so those are two examples that have been that I, I think are really uh, fun. <laughs> and I, I really hope to see more of these types of things in the market. And Francesca, I know that you had mentioned to me uh, a concept that you guys use at uh, Sneak called product-led accounts. Uh, wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more for us. So a lot of people uh, have probably heard either on this podcast or reading different articles on product-led growth that there's uh, this concept called a product-qualified lead. So a product-qualified lead is very similar to a marketing-qualified lead. It's just uh, a, a user or a contact that has done enough activities that tells you that this person is deeply engaged with the product and they should be moved on to the next stage of monetization. So in our case, PQLs are passed to the sales organization. Um, and one of the things uh, one of my teammates uh, thought of was, we have so many PQLs coming in. What if we tried to identify uh, them as part of the same organization? So taking an account-based marketing approach to PQLs um, we call them peak product qualified accounts. And so what we what we have set up is a, a set of 
reporting that allows us to identify those accounts. And on a weekly basis, we send them over to the sales team to go after. And um, this really fits into the top down, uh, bottoms up developer approach that uh, people want so badly that uh, works really well. Um, I know Atlassian is like the one that championed this, um, but this this helps a lot because what we're able to do is identify those accounts and then we use um, a plugin to generate five contacts at those accounts that are uh, more senior decision makers and then are able to call up on those senior decision makers and say, hey, do you know that there's, you know, X number of people using Sneak in your organization, I think we should have a conversation. Um, and that's possibly the best, uh, the best opportunity for a sales rep when they can sell because they know that there's people on those teams that really want this product and are already enjoying it and are already seeing value out of it. If you're able to call somebody senior in the organization and say, they're already seeing value with this major problem that we know you have, let's have a conversation. Um, that's when PLG is really working, when you're able to make it easier for the sales team to get their job done. Yeah, I, I hear a lot of people refer to that as the uh, the pincher strategy. How can you go bottom up and top <laughs> yeah. down at the same time? And it sounds great, um, but it's so much harder uh, in practice than, than it sounds. And so understanding this as a potential way to unlock that, this this idea of multiple PQLs within the same account to create a product-led or product-qualified account um, is, uh, is super impressive. So, so definitely resonates with me. So in closing here, I, I guess if there's founders that are listening to the episode and if they're thinking about either one, they're, they have something going today in security and they want to um, move to more of a product led model, or if they're looking to start a new business, um, they want to do it uh, in security with product led, um, where should they start and, and any pro tips there for, for first time entrepreneurs? The best thing that they can do is focus on usability in the product. Focus on that first five minutes. How can you make that experience really solid, really good, really easy to follow? Um, this is not an easy thing to do. There's uh, tons of companies that are trying to make uh, the bowling alley framework work. What that means is when a user comes in, just go hit a strike on their first try. Um, it's very challenging. So I would say that if you were to invest in anything, Focus on um, building out a product team that can help you do this, both with engineers, product leaders, but also user experience designers um, who can go out and talk to all different users, all different types of personas that your product is focused on and try to understand what they what do they need in the product? What do they want to see in the first five minutes? How can you design it so simply that they understand the value and have a great time using the product? Um, so that's where I would focus a lot of my energy if, if I was trying to think about that problem. And then once you get that, then you can put all the other tactics in place, like the sales teams and um, the sales handoff and then the marketing and, you know, driving user acquisition up. But the first thing I would say is focus in on that product and make that first five minutes really solid. Well, Francesca, this has been fantastic. I, I think that I've learned a tremendous amount about developer relations, developer experience, and um, how you bring product-led growth and uh, all of that on the developer and the community side of the house together. So thank you so much for sharing your insights and sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, it, it's been incredibly valuable conversation. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed your questions. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn to join in on the conversation and let me know what you think about the show. 
Join me this season on Build as we look into the brilliant minds scaling Slack, Notion, Atlassian, and more to discover what it takes to build an awesome product and achieve hypergrowth across every stage of maturity, from seed to IPO and beyond. Now, if you're ready, let's build this together. See you next time here on Build. Oh, 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 oh,